Turn in your Bibles, please, to Daniel chapter 8. In the church Bible, that's page 893. Daniel chapter 8, and I'll read the whole chapter. In the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, I, Daniel, had a vision, after the one that had already appeared to me. In my vision, I saw myself in the citadel of Susa, in the province of Elam. In the vision, I was beside the Ulai Canal. I looked up. And there before me was a ram with two horns standing beside the canal, and the horns were long. One of the horns was longer than the other, but grew up later. I watched the ram as he charged towards the west and the north and the south. No animal could stand against him, and none could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. As I was thinking about this, suddenly a goat with a prominent horn between its eyes, came from the west, crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. He came towards the two-horned ram I had seen standing beside the canal and charged at him in great rage. I saw him attack the ram furiously, striking the ram and shattering his two horns. The ram was powerless to stand against him. The goat knocked him to the ground and trampled on him, and none could rescue the ram from his power. The goat became very great, but at the height of his power, his large horn was broken off, and in its place, four prominent horns grew up towards the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came another horn, which started small, but grew in power to the south and to the east and towards the beautiful land. It grew until it reached the host of the heavens, and it threw some of the starry hosts down to the earth and trampled on them. It set itself up to be as great as the prince of the host. It took away the daily sacrifice from him, and the place of his sanctuary was brought low. Because of rebellion, the host of the saints and the daily sacrifice were given over to him. It prospered in everything it did, and truth was thrown to the ground. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to him, How long will it take for the vision to be fulfilled? The vision concerning the daily sacrifice, the rebellion that causes desolation, and the surrender of the sanctuary and of the host that will be trampled underfoot. He said to me, it will take 2,300 evenings and mornings. Then the sanctuary will be re-consecrated. While I, Daniel, was watching the vision and trying to understand it, there before me stood one who looked like a man. And I heard a man's voice from the Ulai calling, Gabriel. Tell this man the meaning of the vision. As he came near the place where I was standing, I was terrified and fell prostrate. Son of man, he said to me, understand that the vision concerns the time of the end. While he was speaking to me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. Then he touched me and raised me to my feet. He said, I'm going to tell you what will happen later in the time of wrath. Because the vision concerns the appointed time of the end. The two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of Media and Persia. The shaggy goat is the king of Greece. 
And the large horn between his eyes is the first king. The four horns that replaced the one that was broken off represent four kingdoms that will emerge from his nation but will not have the same power. In the latter part of their reign, when rebels have become completely wicked, a stern-faced king, a master of intrigue will arise. He will become very strong, but not by his own power. He will cause astounding devastation and will succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy the mighty man and the holy people. He will cause deceit to prosper. and He will consider himself superior. When they feel secure, he will destroy many and take his stand against the prince of princes. Yet, he will be destroyed, but not by human power. The vision of the evenings and mornings that has been given to you is true, but seal up the vision for it concerns the distant future. I, Daniel, was exhausted and lay ill for several days. Then I got up and went about the king's business. I was appalled by the vision. It was beyond understanding. This is God's Word. Two weeks ago, we looked at Daniel chapter 7. And we tried to give ourselves some help in understanding apocalyptic literature. That's mainly what we find here in the second half of the book of Daniel. And we acknowledged from the beginning that apocalyptic literature can seem bizarre. But we also saw that when we consider the subject matter of apocalyptic, we shouldn't be surprised that it seems bizarre. It's dealing with visions of the future and with visions of current heavenly realities. In other words, when one of the biblical writers sees an apocalyptic vision and he then tries to write down what he saw, he's often trying to describe the indescribable. He has just been taken on a roller coaster ride through the heavens and into the future. So when he or whoever it is comes to tell us what he saw, he's trying to describe things that are beyond our grasp, unknown things. So it shouldn't surprise us that apocalyptic writers are forced to make comparisons with things that we do know. And so we came up with two tips for getting a grasp on apocalyptic. First, we said, when you read apocalyptic, expect metaphor. Expect the writer to use comparisons as he tries to describe the indescribable and the unknown. So one example from the book of Revelation would be John's comment that he saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain standing in the center of the throne. The slain lamb who is now standing on the throne is a metaphor for the crucified but now risen and reigning Lord Jesus. We should expect apocalyptic to be full of metaphors like that, and it is. Then we said, second, think of an apocalyptic vision as more like a poster than a guidebook. Most of the time, these visions are not trying to give us precise details. They're here to give us a striking, memorable image. What they show us is true, but it is not usually precise. It's more like a poster than a guidebook. 
And last time we jumped into Daniel chapter 7. And we saw there a vision of beasts from the sea. As Daniel watched these beasts emerging from the sea, an angel explained what he was seeing. The beasts represented a procession of God-defying human rulers and regimes. We call them kingdoms of chaos. And we saw, too, that this procession would continue throughout history, right up to the end of history. One evil regime after another would rise up in power, then either fall away or be violently cut off, only to be replaced by another until the time when Almighty God brings history to an end. And while this procession of chaos was going on on one part of the stage, in the center of the stage, Daniel could see the throne room of God, a place where there was no chaos, just settled, sovereign authority. However terrible the chaos was at the side of the stage, and it was terrible, as we saw, even that procession of chaos was under the sovereign authority of the Ancient of Days who sits on the throne. Now when we turn to chapter 8, we find a lot of similarities with chapter 7. And in fact, chapter 8 is a zoomed-in look at one point in the procession of chaos. It's a snapshot of one cross-section of that procession. Or to put it another way, here we have a specific case study in chaos. We know it's specific because unusually for an apocalyptic vision, we're given some precise details about who the vision is describing. So we'll look first at the vision, then the meaning of the vision, and then we'll ask, what is this vision here for? What value does this case study in chaos have for you and me today? So first then, in verses 1 to 14, we have the vision. A ram, a goat, and a powerful horn. The first thing to notice is the context and the setting of Daniel's vision. His vision in chapter 7 took place in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. And the setting for that vision was the raging, churning sea, the birthplace of chaos. Here, verse 1 tells us this second vision occurred in the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, so two years after chapter 7. And the setting of the vision is quite different. It's in a very specific place. Look again at verse 2. In my vision, I saw myself in the citadel of Susa, the province of Elam. In the vision, I was beside the Ulai Canal. Daniel lives in Babylon. That's the center of power for the Babylonian Empire. But in this vision, he's 200 miles east of Babylon in a city called Susa. And at this point in time, Susa is a fairly insignificant place. But in the future... It became the winter residence for the Persian kings. And as Daniel chapter 5 has shown us, the Persians and the Medes overthrew the Babylonians. Daniel is seeing this vision before that overthrow happened. 
In other words, before the events of chapter 5. The book isn't in chronological order. But we're being shown here that God is fully aware where power is going to shift to in the future. Susa may not have been on Daniel's radar screen, but it was on God's. And as Daniel looks up, he sees in verse 3 a ram with two horns. This ram rampages around across the map. And the end of verse 4 says, No animal could stand against him, and none could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. Now, since we have our apocalyptic thinking caps on, it's not hard for us to figure out that this two-horned ram represents an earthly kingdom. Later on, we'll find out that it represents a very specific earthly kingdom. But before we're given time to dwell on the ram, Daniel says in verse 5, as I was thinking about this, suddenly a goat with a prominent horn between his eyes came from the west crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. He came towards the two-horned ram I had seen standing beside the canal and charged at him in great rage. This goat has one horn. He arrives at great speed. His feet don't even seem to touch the ground. And he pulverizes the two-horned ram, tramples all over him. And verse 8 tells us, The goat became very great, but at the height of his power, his large horn was broken off, and in its place, four prominent horns grew up towards the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came another horn, which started small, but grew in power to the south and to the east and towards the beautiful land. So this goat starts with one horn that is replaced by four horns. And one of those four then rises in power. And this particular horn from now on is the main focus of the vision. Verse 9 says the beautiful land comes under the power of this horn. The beautiful land is one way the exiles from Israel spoke about their homeland. So when we read the next verses, we are to imagine this growing goat's horn standing in the beautiful land, Israel. Verse 10, it grew until it reached the host of the heavens, and it threw some of the starry hosts down to the earth and trampled on them. It set itself up to be as great as the prince of the host. It took away the daily sacrifice from him, and the place of his sanctuary was brought low. Because of rebellion, the host of the saints and the daily sacrifice were given over to it. It prospered in everything it did, and truth was thrown to the ground." So this horn grows until it tries to seize hold of God-like power. He reaches up and tears stars from the sky and tramples on them. He tries to be as great as God himself, the prince of the host. And when we realize this horn is standing in Israel, we understand that his attack on God takes the form of an attack on God's temple in Jerusalem. He takes away the daily temple sacrifices and the sanctuary is brought low. This God-defying, God-usurping human ruler prospers in all he does. 
So much so that truth is thrown to the ground. At this point, Daniel hears two holy ones talking. One asks the other, how long is this going to go on? And the answer comes in verse 14. It will take 2,300 evenings and mornings. Then the sanctuary will be re-consecrated. That's pretty precise. This is a vision of future evil given to Daniel. But the angels know precisely how long this evil will last. Its cutoff point is already established in heaven. But notice too, there is no reference here to God's people triumphing over this regime. There's no sign of the final victory of the saints that was described in chapter 7. Yes, this horn has a limited lifespan, but we're not told his demise will lead to the final triumph of God's people. We'll come back to that point later. Well, so much then for the content of this vision. What about the meaning? That's explained for us in the rest of our passage. It's an historic episode in the procession of chaos. Gabriel is summoned to explain what Daniel has seen. Look at verse 17. As he came near the place where I was standing, I was terrified and fell prostrate. Son of man, he said to me, understand that the vision concerns the time of the end. In this context, son of man is used simply to mean human being. But it's worth asking what Gabriel means by saying this concerns the time of the end. Does he mean the end of history or the end of this episode in history? Well, remember that the vision showed us no final victory for God's people. So when Gabriel talks about the end here, he means the end of this particular evil regime. Then as we look at Gabriel's explanation, remember that at this point in history, the Babylonian Empire is still in power. Down to verse 20. Gabriel tells Daniel, The two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of Media and Persia. The shaggy goat is the king of Greece. And the large horn between his eyes is the first king. The four horns that replace that, the one that was broken off, represent four kingdoms that will emerge from his nation but will not have the same power. So here Daniel's vision has been tied to very specific historical circumstances. And he would see part of the fulfillment in his own lifetime. This vision is shown to Daniel at some point in the year 548 to 547 BC. We can date that from Belshazzar's reign. In the year 539 BC, Darius the Mede took over Babylon. Daniel was there to see it happen. It's described in chapter 5. So the identity of the two-horned ram has been made very clear. It's the Medes and the Persians. And so is the identity of the one-horned goat that comes along and pulverizes that ram. It's the king of Greece, known to us as Alexander the Great. Alexander came on a whirlwind rampage from the west and he conquered all the way from Italy through to India, displacing the kingdom of the Medes and Persians. 
And that happened long after Daniel was dead and gone. And then after conquering vast territories very quickly, Alexander died suddenly at the age of 33. Look how Daniel described it back in verse 8. The goat became very great, but at the height of his power, his large horn was broken off. And in its place, four prominent horns grew up towards the four winds of heaven. When Alexander died, his kingdom, which was most of the world, was divided between his four generals. But remember, in the vision, all of this was just a prelude to what comes next. Out of one of those four horns came a horn that grew in power and strength. Look again at verse 23. Gabriel says, in the latter part of their reign, that's the four horns or the four kingdoms that follow Alexander, when rebels have become completely wicked, a stern-faced king, a master of intrigue will arise. He will become very strong, but not by his own power. He will cause astounding devastation and will succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy the mighty man and the holy temple. He will cause deceit to prosper. And he will consider himself superior. When they feel secure, he will destroy many and take his stand against the prince of princes. Yet, he will be destroyed, but not by human power. The powerful horn in Daniel's vision is a man called Antiochus Epiphanes. He's the chap up in the corner of our screen. He was a Greek ruler who came from the Seleucid Empire. That's one of the four kingdoms that appeared after Alexander's death. His four generals ruled those four kingdoms initially. And this man's real title was Antiochus IV. But he took the name for himself, Epiphanes. Epiphanes means God manifest. He had a high opinion of himself. And he did indeed make an attack on the beautiful land of Israel. He installed his own high priest in the Jerusalem temple. He butchered many of the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And as foretold in verse 12, he outlawed the two daily sacrifices at the temple. Those sacrifices were commanded in Old Testament law, one in the morning and one in the evening, every day. That order banning the sacrifices was given in 167 B.C., and not content with that, Antiochus built an altar to Zeus on top of the altar in the Lord's temple. And he sacrificed pigs on it. And pigs, as we know, were unclean according to Old Testament law. In other words, Antiochus Epiphanes set himself against God and against God's people. And he succeeded in trampling God's people and their worship into the dust. He succeeded in desecrating God's dwelling place. As Daniel described it in verse 12, Antiochus prospered in everything he did, and truth was thrown to the ground. The historical reality proved to be every bit as devastating as the vision describes it. But his kingdom of chaos came to an end. A Jewish rebel called Judas Maccabeus retook Jerusalem with his army of rebels. 
and he reconsecrated the temple. He tore down the altar to Zeus. He reinstalled priests who were loyal to God's law. And in December 164 BC, the temple was rededicated after a gap of three years. And if you do your mental arithmetic, that amounts to 2,300 missed morning and evening sacrifices. And today, the Jewish people celebrate this rededication at the Feast of Hanukkah. Antiochus himself died around the same time. That, then, is the meaning of the vision. It's an historic episode in the procession of chaos. A case study in chaos, revealed to Daniel long before it happened. But at this point, we may well say, well, so what? I mean, it's interesting to see how the details of this vision have been fulfilled in history. But what's the point? Why show this to Daniel? He wasn't around to see it fulfilled. And so, as he says in verse 27, I was appalled by the vision. It was beyond understanding. We might also say, well, I thought one of the points about apocalyptic is that it doesn't go into details. So why break the rule here in chapter 8? Why mention these historical figures? Those are all good questions. And I think we can say three things by way of response to those questions. Three points that we can take away from this passage. First of all, this chapter shows us that no historical situation takes God by surprise. When Daniel received this vision, it was talking of a future time Daniel knew nothing about. But today, we can look back in history and see how the vision was fulfilled. The details are not disputed. They're part of mainstream world history. Even while the Babylonian Empire was standing tall and strong, God knew who would topple it. He knew who would topple the empire that toppled Babylon. And he knew about Antiochus Epiphanes and his pig sacrifices in Jerusalem. Sometimes as you and I sit in our little moment in history, we might be tempted to wonder if God's as perplexed as we are about it all. Is he scratching his head trying to figure out how to deal with the present crisis, whatever the present crisis happens to be? Daniel chapter 8 says no. Our God is the same God who could tell Daniel in the 6th century B.C. about Antiochus in the 2nd century B.C. When God was telling Daniel about Antiochus, do you think he also knew about Hosni Mubarak and what would go on in Egypt in 2011? Of course he did. No historical situation ever has or ever will take our God by surprise. Surely that's one reason for giving us this historical case study in chaos. There is no possible circumstance in the wider world or in your life or mine that could take God by surprise. If God had chosen to, he could have shown Daniel a vision of your life in February 2011. And our second point of application follows from the first. 
This chapter shows us that all evil directed against God's people has a God-ordained time limit. Even as Daniel was being shown the horrors of the reign of Antiochus, the angel was giving him a definite time limit to that evil. 2,300 evenings and mornings. Referring apparently to the number of twice daily sacrifices that would be missed. Yes, God in his wisdom allowed Antiochus to rampage and to prosper. But when God's time came, Antiochus was removed. Now we know that historically Judas Maccabeus was the human figure involved in Antiochus' downfall. But verse 25 assures us that behind Judas and his rebel army stood God himself. Antiochus was destroyed, but not by human power. Sooner or later, time runs out for every God-defying human regime. Whatever you or I might have to face from human rulers or regimes, whatever our brothers and sisters in other countries might face, whatever our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan might face, all of it has a God-ordained limit. And surely that knowledge helps us to persevere. And it reminds us, too, that one day there will be a final end to evil against God and his people. We glimpsed it back in chapter 7. One day the procession of chaos is going to end. The final beast will have his power taken away. He will be completely destroyed forever. Then, chapter 7 says, the sovereignty, power, and greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be handed over to the saints, the people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will worship and obey him. All evil directed against God's people has a God-ordained time limit. Then a final point to take away from this. We must be humble as we consider the signs of our time. What do I mean by that? We'll look for a moment or think for a moment how Antiochus is described in Daniel's vision. Verse 9 speaks about him as a horn which started small but grew in power. Where have we heard that before? Back in chapter 7, describing the final beast. We were told a little horn would arise who would be different from all the other kingdoms. He will speak against the Most High and oppress his saints and try to change the set times and the laws. The saints will be handed over to him for a time, times, and half a time, says chapter 7 about the little horn. And then the end will come and the saints will rule. But that's how the horn in chapter 8 is described. He will rise up against God. He will oppress the saints. He will suppress worship of God. God's people will be handed over to him. So surely then, Antiochus is the little horn of chapter 7. Surely when Antiochus falls, the end will come. Surely he is the final beast. 
No, he's not. He died over 2,000 years ago. Yes, he had many of the characteristics of the final beast. He went about things the same way. He used the same tactics. But he was just a foreshadowing of the final beast. The end of history did not come when Antiochus was destroyed. What's my point? The point is every generation has its beast. Every generation can point to a leader or a regime who seems to fit the bill of the final beast. And in every generation, some Christians make fools of themselves. They presume to have figured out the timetable of Almighty God. They announce a date for the end. And in doing so, they dishonor the name of Almighty God. They dishonor the reliability of Scripture. And they invariably crush the faith of the gullible Christians who followed them. Apparently, since 1945, there have been over 200 claims to have figured out the exact date of Christ's return. But world history confronts us with a procession of beasts. We must be humble when we consider the signs of our time. Are we to be self-controlled and alert? Are we to be ready every day for Christ to return? Yes. But we must not imagine we have figured out the mind of God. Could our generation see the appearance of the final beast? Yes, of course. So how should we live? Well, we should not fritter away our time and our energy on foolish predictions, neither making them ourselves nor being taken in by others who make them. Instead, we should live as God's people have been called to live in every generation, faithfully, pursuing obedience and holiness, putting sin to death in our lives, loving our brothers and sisters, sharing the gospel, setting our hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Our King is on the throne. And whatever we have to face in this life, one day He will come for us, and we will reign with Him. That's all we need to know. In the meantime, we are called to be faithful servants. You and I are to do what Daniel did after he had contemplated the future. We are to get up and go about the king's business. Let's respond to God's word as we sing, We trust in you, our shield and our defender.